from New York, this is Democracy Now! So the pandemic actually revealed to us how toxic our idea of normal has been because it showed us the desperate need for human connection that we all have. But this is in a culture that has been isolating and atomizing individuals for a long time, where loneliness has been an epidemic for decades. We spend the hour with the acclaimed Canadian physician Gabor Mate, author of the new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. We'll talk to him about his childhood as a Holocaust survivor from Hungary, the surge of addiction and suicide in the United States, as well as healing and the need for the medical and educational communities to rethink how trauma is addressed. When you isolate people, atomize them, you make them feel guilty or weak for their illness and tell them to get over their trauma. You're just shaming them more, you're isolating them more, and you're entrenching them more in the traumatic imprint. What people need is community, contact, compassion, safety. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Immigrant justice advocates are denouncing ongoing efforts by Republicans to send dozens of buses full of asylum seekers to sanctuary cities across the United States. On Thursday, about 100 asylum seekers from Colombia, Cuba, Guyana, Nicaragua, Panama and Venezuela were dropped off in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in Washington, D.C. The buses were sent from Texas by Republican Governor Greg Abbott. This is an asylum seeker from Venezuela. It was a very long trip, quite tough. We didn't expect to be left adrift here without knowing where to head to. Our objective is to reach New York. Asylum seekers were on the road for over 30 hours. At least two of them, including an infant, were taken to the hospital, while others were able to get food and shelter. Carla Bustillos is an immigrant rights advocate in Washington, D.C. So while we're doing this political show, we have human beings feeling that their suffering is being exploited. They have come to the United States to seek asylum, and they have been told to get on these buses and promise that an organization would receive them here, give them food, shelter, and a job. This comes after Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis sent two planes with some 50 asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard, an island off the coast of Massachusetts. DeSantis spoke Wednesday. Yes, if you have folks that are inclined to think Florida is a good place, our message to them is we are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. Community members in Martha's Vineyard welcomed the asylum seekers with food, water and other resources. Many had journeyed for months until reaching the U.S.-Mexico border in search of refuge and were lied to by Florida officials told if they boarded the planes, they'd be sent to Boston to receive jobs and housing. On Thursday, the White House condemned Republican governors for using asylum seekers as, quote, political pawns. 
The United Nations Human Rights Office says it will send monitors to Izium after hundreds of bodies were reportedly discovered in mass graves by Ukrainian forces who retook the city from Russia earlier this month. Ukraine's defense ministry said the largest of the mass burial sites contained 440 unmarked graves and said most of the victims are civilians. In Kyiv, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen met Thursday with President Volodymyr Zelensky, pledging European Union support to Ukraine, quote, for as long as it takes. Von der Leyen's pledge came as the Biden administration said it's sending another $600 million in military aid to Ukraine. On Thursday, Russia's foreign ministry warned the U.S. against providing longer-range missiles to Ukraine. We have repeatedly stated that pumping Ukraine with Western weapons leads to a prolongation of hostilities and new casualties among the civilian population. Moreover, this brings the situation closer to the dangerous line of a direct military clash between Russia and NATO countries. Russian President Vladimir Putin met Thursday with Chinese leader Xi Jinping at a regional summit in Uzbekistan. A Chinese foreign ministry statement after the meeting made no mention of the word Ukraine, but Putin said she told him that Russia needs to, quote, demonstrate the responsibility of a major country to play a leading role and inject stability into a turbulent world, unquote. Putin hinted at strains in the Russian-Chinese relationship by referring to President Xi's questions and concerns about Ukraine. We highly value the balanced position of our Chinese friends when it comes to the Ukraine crisis. We understand your questions and your concern about this. We of course explain our position. Putin also pledged Russian support for China's territorial claim on Taiwan. The Xi-Putin summit was their first face-to-face -face meeting since Russia invaded Ukraine. It was also President Xi's first trip outside China since the start of the pandemic. In Pakistan, waterborne and mosquito-borne diseases are surging after unprecedented monsoon rains and glacial melt left a third of the nation underwater. Doctors in the southern Sindh province report a big rise in cases of malaria, severe gastric infections, more than 4,000 cases of dengue that have led to at least nine deaths. Dengue is spreading fast these days. Out of every 100 patients, 90 are suffering from dengue. Some of them come here with severe symptoms. Pakistan's floods have killed nearly 1,500 people, displaced an estimated 33 million. This week, climate experts at the World Weather Attribution Initiative reported climate change increased the intensity of Pakistan's record rainfall by up to 50 percent during the flooding. Back in the United States, a House congressional committee has uncovered documents revealing how oil company executives' private actions contradicted their public promises to fight climate change. One set of emails obtained by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform shows how Exxon sought to undermine an oil industry pledge to uphold the Paris Agreement. Other internal emails reveal Shell's public pledge to go carbon neutral amounted to corporate greenwashing. This week, lawmakers heard testimony on how public relations firms work to mislead the public over the climate crisis while organizing phony grassroots campaigns to battle proposed regulations. This is environmental lawyer Raya Salter. Climate crisis is an unprecedented global crime, and the smoking gun lies in the hands of big oil and gas. 
They have known with precision for over 40 years that they were doing no less than creating a mass extinction event. A court in Louisiana has revoked air permits for a massive petrochemical complex in a region of the state known as Cancer Alley for its large number of polluting industries. The defeat of Formosa Plastic Corporation's proposed $9.4 billion plant is a major victory for local environmental justice groups, including the Louisiana Bucket Brigade and Rise St. James, who've spent years fighting the project. In Wisconsin, a federal judge has ruled in favor of an indigenous tribe on the south shore of Lake Superior after a challenge construction of Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline. Judge William Conley found the Bad River Band of the Lake Superior Tribe of Chippewa Indians acted within its rights when it revoked permission in 2013 for the pipeline to cross tribal territory. The judge ruled the company's trespassing and must pay damages. Mississippi has lifted a boil water advisory for Jackson 40 days after the state's Department of Health reported the city's water supply was unsafe to drink. The problem was compounded in August when torrential rains caused the Pearl River to overtop its banks, flooding Jackson's main water treatment plant. Republican Governor Tate Reeves said Thursday tap water in Mississippi's capital city is now safe to drink, though he admitted the system is, quote, still imperfect. The head of Mississippi's chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics warns Jackson-area caregivers preparing baby formula should continue to use bottled water because infants remain at risk of heavy metals or other toxins in the water supply. The billionaire founder of Patagonia has given the outdoor apparel company away to a specially designed trust and a nonprofit that will use all the revenue to combat the climate crisis and protect the environment. Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia nearly 50 years ago. The company is valued at about $3 billion. In an interview with The New York Times, he said, quote, instead of extracting value from nature and transforming it into wealth for investors, we'll use the wealth Patagonia creates to protect the source of all wealth, he said. The World Health Organization has given its most upbeat assessment on COVID-19 since declaring the disease an international emergency in January of 2020. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said Wednesday the number of newly reported infections has dropped dramatically. Last week, the number of weekly reported deaths from COVID-19 was the lowest since March 2020. We have never been in a better position to end the pandemic. We're not there yet, but the end is in sight. This week, the number of global confirmed COVID-19 deaths topped 6.5 million. But the WHO reports the number of excess deaths during the first two years of the pandemic totaled nearly 15 million. 
A federal judge has rejected a request by the Justice Department to resume its investigation into documents seized by the FBI from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. On Thursday, U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon upheld her earlier ruling, which bars the Justice Department from further examining the documents, many of which are marked top secret, until a special master has a chance to review more than 11,000 pages. She also formally named retired federal judge Raymond Deere to the position. The ruling will add lengthy delays to the Justice Department's criminal probe into Trump's mishandling of government records. Judge Cannon was nominated to the federal bench in 2020 by then-President Trump. Senate Democrats have once again delayed debate on a bill to ban lawmakers and their families from trading stocks. On Thursday, Oregon Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley told Business Insider any vote on the congressional stock trading ban will have to wait until after November's midterm elections. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren responded, quote, every day we delay on passing meaningful restrictions on stock trading among members of Congress is a day that further erodes the credibility of this body, she said. Ethics watchdog Walter Schaub of the Project on Government Oversight accused Senator Markley of slow-walking the legislation until the Senate's calendar runs out. This week, The New York Times reported at least 97 current lawmakers or their close family members have bought or sold stocks or other investments that intersected with their legislative committee work. El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele announced Thursday he will seek re-election despite the Salvadoran Constitution's ban on consecutive presidential terms. The Salvadoran Constitution limits each term to five years. Bukele's announcement came one year after he and allies appointed new judges to the Salvadoran Supreme Court in an effort to allow Bukele's illegal re-election efforts. His government has been accused of severe human rights violations, including the arbitrary detention and torture of people accused of being in gangs. His term is set to end in 2024. And in Mexico, a retired general and at least two other members of the military were arrested Thursday in connection with the 2014 disappearance of 43 students from Ayotzinapa. Retired Army General José Rodríguez Pérez was the commander of the military base in Iguala, Guerrero, when the students were ambushed and kidnapped. Last month, a truth commission established by the Mexican president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, confirmed the military's involvement in the crime and said their disappearance was a crime of the state. Mexico's former attorney general, Jesus Murillo Caram, who served under former President Enrique Peña Nieto, was also arrested in August. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, Canadian Dr. Gabor Mate, author of the new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Stay with us.
Labyrinth. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour with Dr. Gabor Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and author. He's just out with a new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Dr. Mate has worked for decades in Vancouver as a family physician, palliative care director, addiction clinician, and observer of human health. Dr. Mate's work has long focused on the centrality of early childhood experiences to the development of the brain and how those experiences can impact everything from behavioral patterns to physical and mental illness. Over the years, he's written a number of best-selling books, including In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection, and Scattered Minds, the Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder. In a moment, we'll speak to Dr. Gabor Mate, but first I want to turn to a trailer of a documentary about his work titled The Wisdom of Trauma. In the U.S., the richest society in history, fully half of the citizens have a chronic disorder such as high blood pressure or diabetes. Anxiety amongst young people is growing rapidly. Asthma and autoimmune diseases are on the rise, as are addictions. Depression is rising. Youth suicide is rising. All is not well. I started heroin at 26. That's what really destroyed me. It just takes the pain away. It's easy to want to escape reality completely instead of coping with it. And so the question is, can we be human beings in the midst of civilization? Because what we call civilization demands the denial of human needs. Please welcome Dr. Gabor Mate. Every human being has a true, genuine, authentic self. And the trauma is that disconnection from it, and the healing is the reconnection with it. Why do we get disconnected? Because it's too painful to be ourselves. So you sort of a bit like in the Matrix when Neo sees everything's made out of numbers. You look at people and you see all their trauma and damage. That's and what I see. So trauma is not the bad things that happen to you, but what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. What do you want to tell me? What comes up right now? Shame. Thank you. My father, he would spank us and take a belt to us. Who did you speak to about your pain? Nobody. Yeah, that's the trauma. In other words, by the time you're five years old, you're completely alone. People are much more lonely and isolated than they used to be. Literally, it causes inflammation in the body and suppresses the immune system. You've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Correct. In my view, people that develop cancer have a hard time expressing healthy anger. Clinton versus Donald Trump. There were two traumatized people oh, the American, the American. fighting to govern a traumatized world. That's exactly what I'm saying. And these are the people that our society rewards with power. Our schools are full of kids with learning difficulties, mental health issues that are trauma-based, but the average teacher never gets a single lecture on trauma. We need trauma-informed medical care trauma-informed education. If we had a trauma-informed society, we'd have a society that looks much more compassionate. You 
did. You made a difference in my life. You're thank, you, thank you for being in touch. I don't feel like I'm a bad person anymore. Hey, how are you? Yeah, I just want people to see the truth. Solutions arise out of people when they confront themselves with the truth, when they're not afraid of the truth. I think the biggest thing that this whole healing journey has taught me is how to be human. The trailer for the film The Wisdom of Trauma, featuring Dr. Gabor Mate, who is our guest for the hour. He's just written a new book with his son, Daniel, titled The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Dr. Mate will be appearing tonight in New York City at the 92nd Street Y. On Thursday, Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I spoke to Gabor Mate. I began by asking him about the pandemic and the book title, The Myth of Normal. So the pandemic actually revealed to us how toxic our idea of normal has been, because it showed us the desperate need for human connection that we all have. But this is in a culture that has been isolating and atomizing individuals for a long time, where loneliness has been an epidemic for decades. It showed the noxious effect of racism and inequality, because the people who had the um, greatest risk for being affected by COVID were those of uh, lower social class and of people of color. It, uh, the normal that we came from, in my perspective, was already a toxic normal. We don't want to go back to it, because my contention in this book is what we consider to be normal in this society is actually neither natural or healthy. And in fact, it's a cause of much human pathology, mental and physical, and actually People's pathologies, what we call abnormalities, whether it's mental or physical illness, are actually normal responses to what is an abnormal culture. And Dr. Gabor Mate, you say uh, in the book, in fact, that there are no clear lines between normal and abnormal. Could you explain what you mean by that and how you understand the spectrum along which these things lie? Well, the key here is trauma. Uh, trauma is a psychological wound that people sustain. And I'm saying that in this society, most of us, because of the nature of the culture, the way we raise children, the way we have to relate to each other, the very values of a society are traumatizing for a lot of people, so that it's false to say that some people are normal and others are abnormal. In fact, we're all on the spectrum of of woundedness, which has great impact on how we relate to each other and on our health. And Dr. Mate, explain how you understand, as you say in the book, that uh, the term trauma has uh, uh, Greek origins, but that yeah. it's come to mean something quite different. I mean, in the Greek origin, it referred to a physical injury or a physical wound. Uh, but in uh, psychiatry, in the work of Freud and psychoanalysis, uh, in medical literature, generally now trauma is understood as a, a wound to the mind. It's a wound to the psyche, to our emotional being, and to the soul. And trauma is not what happens to us. People, when they think of trauma, they think usually of catastrophic events like a tsunami or a war or parents dying or sexual or a physical emotional abuse of a child. These events are traumatic, but they're not the trauma. The trauma is the psychic wound that we sustain. And our psychological traumas have lifelong impacts. And in my medical work, I found that psychological trauma, woundedness, 
underlies much of what we call disease, whether autoimmune illness or cancer or the various mental health conditions. And in our society, psychological woundedness is very prevalent, and it's a rather an illusion to believe some people are traumatized and others are not. I think there's a spectrum of trauma that crosses all layers and all segments of society. Naturally, it falls heavier on certain segment, sections, uh, on, on people of color, people with um, uh, genders that are not fully accepted by society, uh, people of economic inequality uh, who suffer more from inequality, but the traumatization is pretty general in our culture. Gabor, I was wondering if you could take some time and talk about your own journey from trauma and how it shaped you as a, a infant in Nazi-occupied Hungary um, to where you are today and how that has influenced who you are. Well, you know, the first chapter of the book opens with my arrival home to Vancouver, where I live, from a speaking trip. And I'm feeling really good about myself because it was a good trip, my talk was well received, and I had a good flight home. And when I arrived back at the airport in Vancouver, I got a text from my wife saying, I haven't left home yet, do you still want me to come? And all of a sudden my mood switches, I become dark, I become angry, I become withdrawn, I become sullen. And when I get home, I'm barely even looking at her. Now, what actually happened here? All that happened was that my artist wife, typical of an artist, was in the middle of creative flow in her studio, and she forgot that her husband was arriving home at the airport. What was triggered in me, however, was the wound of a one-year-old infant who was abandoned by his mother in an effort to save my life, actually. But the meaning I made of it is that I wasn't lovable, that I wasn't wanted. And even 71 years later, when this woman, while we were lying, to be there for me doesn't show up. The woundedness of a one-year-old infant shows up. And that's what my friend Peter Levine calls the tyranny of the past. And so these early wounds, in my case, this sense of abandonment, could still show up seven decades later over a relatively trivial incident. And these early wounds of ours, well, or, so that's one way that it showed up. It shows up in my relationship to my work. So I was a workaholic physician for many decades. Why was I a workaholic? Because the message I got as an infant under the Nazis was that the world didn't want me. And if the world doesn't want you, one way to cope with it is to make yourself very important, become a helper, become a physician, because now they're going to want you all the time. But that's very addictive, because you keep trying to prove to yourself something you don't believe in the first place, which is that you're wanted. And so that the more people rewarded me with either financially or with their attention or their gratitude for my medical work, the more I needed it, the more I became dependent on it. So it shows up in so many ways. These early wounds show up in so many ways. It shows up in our relationships, in our marriages, in our in our relationship to our children, in our relationship to our work. It shows up in politics, as we've seen during COVID. So these early wounds in my life had had wide-ranging implications, and as they do in the lives of many people. Now, you've intrigued us because you said at the time you thought your mother abandoned you, um, but you, of course, now understand she was doing it to save you. Can you explain what happened? Sure. So I was 11 months of age. My mother was a 24-year-old 
Jewish woman living under the Nazi occupation under a viciously anti-Semitic fascist regime in December of 1944, and she found refuge in a safe home run by the Swiss embassy, but there were 2,000 people living there in a home meant for 100 people. The sanitary conditions were terrible. Food was very uncertain. She did, and I was very sick, and she didn't think I would live. So she went out into the street and gave me to a Christian woman, a complete stranger, and asked her to take me to some relatives who were living under relatively, relatively safer conditions. Her intention was simply to save my life, and she did. But as an 11-month-old, I could only interpret that as an abandonment, because I don't understand the conditions. Now, who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not wanted. So I developed, developed this fixed belief, okay, I'm not lovable, I'm not wanted. Now, you don't need conditions of war and privation and such drama to give children the sense that they're not wanted. In this society, a lot of parents are advised not to pick up the kids when they're crying. That's enough to give the child the sense that they're not wanted and not accepted. And so I, I was traumatized under very—and so the trauma is not that my mother gave me to a stranger. The trauma is what I made it mean, the wound inside, that I'm not lovable, I'm not wanted. Dr. Mate, let's go back uh, uh, precisely to um, how you understand and how we should understand uh, the event of trauma. First of all, uh, can trauma arise from a single episode, or is it something that has to, in some form, even if not precisely the same one, be repeated? And to what extent is the fact that you cannot know the trauma when it actually occurs, account for the fact that its effects endure and, and, and as you say, uh, show up decades later? Well, as your question implies, uh, trauma can uh, be um, induced in people in a number of ways. It could be a single dramatic event, the death of a parent, a tremendous loss in life, um, a terrible explosion, you know, it, it, it occurs that way sometimes. And those are relatively easy to identify and then actually they're easier to deal with. But for a lot of people, it's much more insidious and much more chronic than that. For example, certain child-rearing practices, for decades, the Dr. Spock, who was kind of the guru of parenting, advised parents not to give in to the, the infant's tyranny that infant's resistance to sleep. Now, what he calls the infant's tyranny is the infant's desperate need to be picked up and held by the parent. That's just a trait that we share with all other mammals. You tell a mother baboon not to pick up their baby, or a mother cat not to respond to the child's distress. But we here in North America, we've been telling parents for decades to ignore their children's cries. And, uh, or, for example, when a child is angry, a two-year-old is angry, to make, give them a time-out, which is to say, to threaten them with the loss of the attachment relationship that they desperately need. Those events are just as traumatic over the long term, but they're harder to identify because they seem so normal, and they don't seem dramatic. But uh, they do show up later on in life in all kinds of dysfunctional patterns. And Dr. Mate, you speak in the book about uh, unresolved traumas. So in mm -hmm. the examples that you're giving now, or indeed uh, in the case of trauma more generally, if one can speak generally about trauma, what 
kinds of uh, practices can lead, uh, if at all, to the resolution of a trauma? Well, whether we're speaking about on a social level, which we have to speak, or whether on the individual level, which is what it strikes most of us, the first thing that has to happen is a recognition that how are we living or some aspect of our lives is not working for us and that there's a cause for it which we can actually uncover by some compassionate inquiry. And very often there needs to be a wake-up call. Now, COVID could have been a wake-up call for this culture, but I don't think it will have worked that way. It should have, but it didn't because of the nature of this society, the transformation, the resistance to social transformation in this culture is so deep that the COVID lessons, I don't think, have been learned, nor will be applied. On the individual level, very often it's an illness, whether of a depression, an anxiety, uh, a psychiatric diagnosis, a relationship breakup or a physical illness, like an autoimmune disease or malignancy, that works as the wake of a call. So there's got to be some kind of event that happens that says to us, hmm, this is not working. We need to understand why not and we need to move past it. And once we get that wake of call in whatever form, and one of my intentions in this book is to to help people not get to that dire, dramatic point where some significant illness has to wake them up. But once we get to the point of waking up, then we conduct an inquiry. Okay, what was driving my behaviors? Why was I always driving myself on a job, like as if my life depended on it? Why was I a workaholic, stressing myself? Why was I so hard on my children? What is it that makes me feel so hurt when my partner doesn't pick me up at the airport, you know. So then we start looking at what happened to our lives and we find the answers in our history. And then it's a matter of letting go of those patterns. And that takes some kind of work, usually therapy or some kind of spiritual work or psychological work, some kind of different way of taking care of ourselves. Usually it takes some inquiry, what I call a compassionate inquiry, of looking at ourselves with real curiosity, what is causing me to live the way I'm living, and why is it not working for me? Gabarmante, you, your book comes out at an extraordinary time, given your topic, and I know it took you years to write, but now, um, in the pandemic, uh, you have, uh, according to— um, uh, the CDC hospitals reported a 24 percent increase in mental health emergencies for children between the ages yeah. of, what, um, 5 to 11, um, and the issue of mental health overall so critical at this point. Uh, you talk a lot also about loneliness. But can you start by talking about this mental health crisis among youth and the escalating suicide? But yes. So the New York Times, uh, about three weeks ago, as we speak now, had a front-page article in their Sunday edition about a teenager who was on 10 different psychiatric medications. Can you imagine? 10 different psychiatric medications. And there's been articles in The New Yorker and The New York Times within the last four or five months about the rising tide of childhood suicides. Um, there is a vast increase in the number of children being diagnosed with ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, with anxiety, depression, self-cutting, obsessive-compulsive behaviors, and so on. Now, we can make two assumptions. 
either there's some accidental, totally unexplainable rise in childhood pathology that has no specific reason whatsoever for its instigation, or we can recognize that we live in a toxic culture that by its very nature affects children's development in such unhealthy ways that children are increasingly mentally unbalanced and desperate to the extent that they're cutting themselves and even trying to kill themselves. So we have to look for those conditions, not in the individual mind or brain or personality of the child or youth, we have to look at them into social conditions that drive children in those, those directions. And unfortunately, in a public conversation around it, it's all about the pathology and how to treat it, and it's not about the social cultural causes that are ch driving children in those desperate directions. So can you talk about how you view this and how this not just this country, the world can heal, especially focusing on youth? Well, we need to begin right at the beginning. And the beginning is actually in the womb. Now, we already know from multiple, multiple studies, not even controversial, that the more stress there is on pregnant women, the greater the impact, even decades later, on the well-being of the, of the infant. So how are we looking after pregnant women? The average physician—I mean, I was trained as a medical doctor—to this day, the average physician, when they're trained in prenatal care, they're not trained to ask about the woman's emotional states. They're not trained to ask about, how are you doing? How's your relationship? How's your work stress? What can we do to support you? We only look after the body, and we separate the mind from the body. We know that stresses on the woman can already have an impact on the infant. Then there's our birth practices. In North America now, the cesarean section rate is approaching 40%. Now, modern, modern obstetrics is miraculous in its capacity to save lives, and it should be applied about 10 to 15% of cases to, for the benefit of the infant or the mother. But a 40% C-section rate and the mechanization of birth, natural birth, as evolved by nature, was designed to produce a bonding experience for mother and infant, including the release of bonding chemicals that will bring them together for a lifelong relationship. When we medicalize birth, we interfere with it, we mechanize it. We create fear around it. We're actually interfering with the mother-child bond on which the child's healthy development develops. Then, in the United States, 25% of women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. Now, nature would have that mom be with the child for at least nine months, usually longer if you look at it historically. 25% of women having to go back to work for economic reasons, for lack of social support amounts to a massive abandonment of infants, because that's how the infants experience it. That's the only way they can interpret it, just the way I interpreted my mother's giving me to a stranger as an abandonment. Then there's the child-rearing practices that I've already mentioned, of not picking up children when they're crying, of parents being so stressed that their stresses are absorbed by the infant that the parents' economic, racial, social anxieties, relational anxieties, their own unresolved trauma, are absorbed by the infants. 
Then there's parenting practices that focus on trying to control the child's behavior without in any way trying to meet the child's needs. The human child is born with certain needs for unconditional loving acceptance, for being held, for the capacity to experience all their emotions with parental support. In this society, those needs are denied over and over and over again. And most of our children spend most of their time away from their parents, so they lose the connection with the parent. Do we wonder then that the child's circuits of anxiety and panic in the brain are activated and extra overactivated? These are natural consequences of an unnatural culture. Dr. Gabor Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and co-author with his son Daniel of the new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Back in 30 seconds with him. DemocracyNow.org, The War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we continue our conversation with Dr. Gabar Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and author. We spoke about his new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Dr. Mate, could you elaborate uh, on what you've been talking about now, namely the uh, relationship between uh, individual, the effects of an individual and social trauma? You said in a recent interview, quote, being left with an emptiness and insatiable craving creates addiction in the personal sense and capitalism in the social sense. And both these are taken to be coping mechanisms for the experience of trauma, if you could explain. Mm -hmm. Well, let me give you a, a more simple—I will answer that question, but let me give you first a simpler example of um, social trauma and illness. So it's been well shown that the more experiences of racism a black, black American woman has to endure, the greater her risk for asthma. In other words, the constriction of her airways and the inflammation of her airways are the physiological product of a social malaise. Now, who's got the pathology here? Society or the individual? Can we even make a separation between the two? We know that if you look at the markers of aging, various biological markers of aging, they're much more advanced in black people of the same age as their white, as their Caucasian cohorts, simply because of racism, because social stress and trauma translate into the physiology of the individual. You can't separate the mind from the body, and you cannot separate the individual from the environment. In Canada, where I live, an, indi an indigenous woman—by the way, indigenous people used to have no autoimmune disease whatsoever prior to colonization. Today, an indigenous woman in Canada has six times the risk, six times the risk of rheumatoid arthritis. 
And the same thing is true in the United States, by the way, that autoimmune disease strikes especially women and especially women of color in much higher rates. These reasons have nothing to do with genetics and everything to do with social trauma. Now, the emptiness that you refer to uh, in a society that tells you that you're not enough, that you're not good enough, that you don't look good enough, that you don't have enough, that you don't own enough, that you haven't attained enough, creating this sense of emptiness is the fuel that runs the consumer society, where never is enough. You always have to have more and more. You have to attain more and more, obtain more and more. So basically, it's a highly addictive culture that feeds off people's addiction to drive its profits. And they do so quite deliberately. When it comes to the food industry, for example, you probably remember this book a few years ago, uh, Salt, Sugar, and Fat, where the food companies very deliberately try to identify, using sophisticated neuroscience, the sweet spot, the bliss spot, the, that, that when you have the right combination of salt, sugar, and fat in your junk food, that's what gets people addicted. So that the, the digital companies uh, employ what's called neuromarketing. They try and find what's the best way to excite the circuits in the brain of the customer that gets most addicted in order to get them hooked on their products. What we're looking at here is the mass engineering of addiction. And we're not talking conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy reality. That's how it works. But, of course, from the point of view of profit, it works, because people are going to buy junk foods that are going to kill them or make them ill. But those companies don't care. They just want to—it's not that they're trying to kill you, as I say in one chapter of the book. They just don't care if you die. Because what really matters is profit. So this society runs on people's sense of deficient emptiness, where more and more is what they think is needed to fill that hole inside themselves. Dr. Gabramate, one part of the power of the myth of normal, your book, is the examples that you use, uh, mm. particular people, um, especially women who are sick or chronically ill. Uh, some of them you name, uh, like V, formerly known mm. as Eve Ensler. You have a whole section talking about her. And if you can talk about how she fits into this idea of healing from trauma um, to other people, um, give us some case studies. Sure. Well, V, uh, in her astonishing book, which I think you've discussed on your program, In the Body of the World, uh, where she describes her near death and then recovery from stage three and four uterine cancer, she asks herself at some point, do I have, do I have rape cancer? Because her history was that she was chronically, for years, sexually and physically and emotionally abused by her father. Now, we know from multiple studies that the more trauma and the more abuse you suffered as a child, the greater the risk for autoimmune disease or malignancy later on. So, for example, uh, young girls sexually abused have a much higher rate of endometriosis, which is a risk factor for uterine cancer. Uh, we also know from a recent study from Harvard that the more symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder a woman has, the greater her risk for ovarian cancer. So when Eve asks, do I have rape cancer? The answer is very much yes. She's got rape cancer. And then she goes through this incredible process of healing. 
which involved the, the best services, not always delivered in the best way, but certainly astonishing achievements of modern medicine that really helped save her lives. But, was, but Eve also underwent a personal transformation, where she—what happens is when you're traumatized, and V talks about this, is you get disconnected from your body. You get disconnected from your body, because when you're a child being abused by your father, it's too painful to be in your body, so you disconnect. And all of a sudden, V has this <clears throat> massive surgery, and she wakes up with all kinds of lymph nodes and organs removed from her body and tubes in and out of her body, but she's back in her body, and she finds this exhilarating. So that, that loss of connection to the body is one aspect of trauma, the reconnection that happened in V's case, not just because of the medical treatment that she received, but because of the powerful emotional and spiritual support that she received and that she opened herself to, resulted in a complete transformation of her personality and her relationship to herself. The other thing that V has done is she became a powerful activist and a social engagement which connects her to people and, and, and has given such deep meaning to her life and her activity. That's a powerful healing um, modality as well, and I talk about that in the book. And, and V is a, such a noble and inspiring example of that. And in the book, I give many examples of people who are faced with serious diagnoses, written off by Western medicine, but they have a powerful transformation in their relationship to themselves. They regain that connection to themselves that they lost as a result of trauma. And as a result, their illness takes very surprising trajectories, sometimes miraculous. And so, in the book, I talk about women with rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis who are told that you've got this disease for the rest of your life and it's just a physical disease, nothing we can do about it. When they realize that both the rheumatoid arthritis and the multiple sclerosis have to do with trauma and stress, for which, by the way, there's all kinds of research evidence completely ignored in medical practice. But when they realize that how they live their lives, that the disease is not an accident, the disease is a manifestation of how they live their lives informed by their unresolved trauma, when they deal with the trauma and they develop a different relationship to themselves, all of a sudden, the disease lightens up for them, as you expect it would once you realize that the mind and body are inseparable. And by the way, I'm not the only one who writes about this. There's been researchers from Harvard and elsewhere who've documented similar cases. The point we're all making is that the mind and body is inseparable, the individual is inseparable from the environment, and so that when you look at the whole person in their whole environment and the whole context, we have powerful modalities of healing available to us that Western medicine, unfortunately, seems unaware of. Dr. Mate, if you could also talk about uh, another uh, aspect, uh, another way in which uh, society might exacerbate uh, individual trauma. You talk in the book, you're critical in the book about this idea that people should simply push through it, this idea of resilience. What are the mm. effects of that uh, orientation uh, towards trauma? And if you could link it also with what you've just said about the way in which the medical establishment uh, and Western medicine understands the question of uh, psychic wounds. The average medical student, deal, uh, how, how the medical 
system deals with trauma is that it doesn't. The average medical student does not get a single lecture on the relationship between trauma and physical or mental illness, despite the voluminously documented evidence. So that's, there's this huge gap between our science and what we practice. So that so many physicians have to figure this out after they leave medical school. They have to figure it out on their own, because nothing in their training prepared them for it. As a matter of fact, their own training is often so traumatic in itself, and their own traumas are not dealt with, that they're just not prepared to deal with the traumas of their patients. It's just a subject that's almost completely ignored across the practice of medicine. Now, in terms of the get over it and resilience aspect, there's a beautiful story or, or truth that my friend, uh, Dr. Louis Mel Madrona, who's a Lakota Sioux background uh, psychiatrist and physician, and Louis Mel Madrona told me, and she's, he's an author as well, and he told me that in the Lakota tradition, when somebody gets ill, the community says, thank you. Your illness represents some dysfunction in our whole community because we're not separate. Your body is not separate from your mind, and your mind is not separate from the rest of our minds. We co-create each other. So your illness represents some dysfunction, some imbalance in our whole community. So your healing is our healing. How can we support you? That's the traditional indigenous way of looking at human beings, which modern science, by the way, is more than amply validated, but which modern medicine still ignores. So now the onus is not just on this individual to get over it. It's actually resilience is seen as a communal uh, endeavor and as a communal attribute. And when you isolate people, atomize them, you make them feel guilty or weak for their illness and tell them to get over their trauma. You're just shaming them more, you're isolating them more, and you're entrenching them more in the traumatic imprint. What people need is community, contact, compassion, safety. That's what allows people to work through their traumas. And unfortunately, that's not readily available. There's this amazing figure out from the National Center for Health Statistics revealing that U.S. life expectancy fell from 79 years old in 2019 to 76 in 2021, the largest two-year decline in almost a century. Um, with advances in modern medicine, it's astounding, but maybe not astounding, when you look at the kind of health system we have in this country that increases the disparities um, between those who um, have wealth and those who don't, when you look at, you know, health in a capitalist system. I was wondering if you could comment on that, Dr. Mate. Well, the— Impact of inequality has been studied by uh, Sir Michael Marmot, who's a British epidemiologist and his former head of the World Medical Association. And uh, they talk about a social gradient, that, that the lower social class you are, the greater the risk to your health. And this has been known for decades. Now, the these decline in the U.S. national life expectancy, you can look upon it again as sort of mysterious individual pathology, or you can actually look at the social conditions that drive it. And much of that is due to the hollowing out of the American um, 
industrial heartland due to globalization and the loss of meaning and purpose and meaningful employment in people's lives. This is what have been called in the United States uh, deaths of despair. So, so many of these deaths are due to suicide and to drug overdoses and to alcoholism. And suicide and drug overdoses and alcoholism are direct outcomes of a society that deprives people of meaning and belonging, a sense of connection, a sense of value, a sense of purpose. So again, we can look upon these manifestations as individual pathology, which yields no explanation whatsoever, or we can see them as the outcomes of a toxic culture. Uh, you experienced the same thing in the, in the former Soviet Union. When the, with the collapse of the so, uh, former Soviet Union, loss of jobs, loss of employment, loss of meaning and purpose, the, the life expectancy of men plummeted drastically within a few years. Now we're seeing the same phenomenon in the United States. The title of your book, Dr. Gaber Mate, is The Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. So, why don't we end with that question of healing, both individually mm -hmm. and as a society? Yes. So, healing, again, if you look at the word origins, which I often do, comes from a word for wholeness. So, healing actually is a movement towards our wholeness. Now, if trauma is a split from ourselves, for example, a split from our bodies, as in the case of V, who had to disconnect from her body to survive her childhood, then healing is that reconnection with ourselves. And that, and if trauma is not what the terrible things that happen to us, but trauma is the wound that we sustained and are carrying, that's a very positive message, because it means that that wound can be healed at any time. You see, if the trauma is what happened to me, now 77 years ago, that my mother gave me to a stranger, that'll never not have happened. But if the trauma is what I made it mean, the wound that I sustained, that I wasn't a lovable, worthwhile human being, that wound can be healed at any moment in all of us. So the last and longest section of the book explores what we call pathways to healing or pathways to wholeness. That's the meaning of healing. There are many different pathways. There's no one-size-fits-for-all. It needs to begin with the recognition that how we're living and how we're relating to ourselves and others is not healthy. It may be the norm in this culture, but it's neither healthy or natural, and there are better ways. And the same thing is true for our culture. And the essential first step is what I call being disillusioned. Now, people usually think of disillusionment as discouraging and somehow negative. No. Would we rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Would we rather see the world through rose-colored glasses, not seeing what's in front of us? Or would we rather deal with reality the way it is? In the final chapter, I quote James Baldwin, the great, great James Baldwin, who said that not everything that's faced can be healed, but nothing that's not faced can be healed. Dr. Gaber Mate, the acclaimed Canadian physician and author with a son Daniel of the new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Dr. Mate will be appearing tonight here in New York City at the 92nd Street Y, where he'll be in conversation with Tara Westover, the author of Educated. And that does it for our show. To see all our interviews with Dr. Mate, you can go to democracynow.org. 
Happy belated birthday to Sam Alcoff. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Shea, Maria Tarasena, Charina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astu, Joe John Hamilton. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.